thud, thud, thud of little feet going out of here. Well, thank you so much again for joining us. Um, it was several years ago now that I went on a long bike ride from my home in Gap and wove my way around Lancaster County. I ended up somewhere in Marietta and got lost. And my GPS on my bike uh, really only allows me to go in one direction. And if I get off that track, it doesn't recalculate. And I didn't know where I was. And so I was in some alleyway in Marietta, and it lost itself. And so I'm going down the road rather slowly. And I see a couple walking toward me, and I figure that they seem nice enough. It's somewhere at 2 in the afternoon, and I, uh, I roll to the side and let them come up to me, and I just ask for directions to get back to a road that I knew would be on my GPS route. And within about two seconds of me stopping and asking them for directions, I realized I actually know this couple. They were in their 60s um, by now, I believe that's right. And I knew that they didn't know me because I had the advantage of being all decked out in my biking gear, including helmet and sunglasses, and I knew they had no idea who I was, and it had been a long time since I had last seen them. And uh, after they gave me their directions to get back to where I wanted to go, I took my sunglasses off and I said, Bill, Connie, nice to see you again. At which point they freaked out. No, they didn't freak out. They were like, what? And you could see the puzzling look, and I still had my helmet on and all that, and I said, hey, I'm, I'm Tim, and we talked for a minute. They were my junior high leaders in um, five years ago when I was in junior high. That's right. They were my junior high leaders about, oh, wow, 25, 30 years ago, I guess that would be, somewhere in that range, about 25 years ago probably, at Grace Baptist Church in Lancaster. And I still remember Bill Sharp particularly, and here's the interesting thing about Bill, I don't actually remember a single thing that he taught me. I don't remember anything that he taught at all. In fact, he led retreats and he led teachings for us and all that, but I don't remember anything. Quite frankly, I don't even remember some things I say on a Sunday morning come Tuesday, so it doesn't surprise me that I don't remember what Bill taught me 25 years ago, but I remember Bill significantly and he left a big impression on me. Bill was a leader for me that modeled something that was very profound at that point in my life and still today is very profound. He was a kind and caring and gentle man who had incredible strength and he married the two of them together in a person that was very unique and he took interest in me. He gave me a picture of someone who uses their power and influence in a very selfless way that had an emotional and formative impact on my life in that stage of life where without even realizing it, I was growing up and thinking, I kind of want to be like that. Bill Sharp. Good Bill Sharp. What a guy. What a guy. Now here's the interesting thing. It is difficult for you and me to wake up today in this day and age and not see examples of people using their power and influence in ways that are very difficult in our world today. It is, it is not hard. In fact, it happened to me this morning. I, when I woke up, I ended up you know, along the line uh, going on my Twitter feed and seeing a, a Twitter feed of what was going on. And, and again, some of you may be tracking with uh, the, the evangelical world, church leaders, another church leader has some moral accusations against him and has stepped down. And there's various articles written about that. And, and one of them, Ed Stetzer wrote, and he said, um, well, he put it this way in this article that was just released today in Christianity Today. The title of it was The, the Moral of Moral Failings of Christian Leaders or Evangelical Leaders. What is the moral of the moral failings? And here's what he had to say. He said, it pains us to know that too many have been victims at the hands of those in power, the very ones who should have been the protectors of the marginalized and the vulnerable. 
that over and over again, in fact, I can't wake up in a given day and look at the news and see what's going on in the world today. I can't even open my phone and look at Twitter without seeing how people use and abuse power. Not only in politics, I mean, sure, in politics, that's almost a given, but also in the church, and also in business, and also, if I'm honest, in myself. How we use power and the influence that we have is a very profound issue. And this is the issue that we've been on for the last couple of weeks and will continue on today. And, and Jesus teaches on this issue of power because he teaches about something called the kingdom. And the kingdom, that language alone indicates something of power. You have to have power to establish a kingdom. Jesus establishes a kingdom and attempts to establish a kingdom. The question is how If you're a member of that kingdom, how is it that you should exert and exercise power within that space? And this has been what we've been talking about for the last three weeks, and this is week number four in this series that we're calling Power. This idea of looking at a different model, a different use, a different way that people can use power. Because I think, by and large, there is a... I don't know that we've been in a... If there's another time in our modern history that is so confused around the issue of how one uses its power on a regular basis, as our young people, as our next generation finds itself today, with a model of leaders that they're seeing and the news feed that's coming over and over and over and over and over again, and the distance that comes with power as the world sees it, and the, the trouble and struggle that can happen in that space. And so I want to speak into that and step into that space. And I think Jesus speaks into that space with what does the kingdom of God mean for those who want to follow Jesus. And so if you're here this morning or you're listening online later and you call yourself a Christian, a Jesus follower, then this is particularly for you. If you're not, listen, you can still listen. You can still hear and I think it can still be a helpful thing for you. But this particularly, if you call yourself a Christian, is something that we have to wrestle with and the struggle and the challenge of what Jesus teaches on this issue of power. Today he uses a word to describe people in the kingdom that is a very confusing word. It's a confusing concept. And when he uses this word, because it's so confusing and strange, we just don't even know what to do with it, and so we don't even really talk about it, and then we don't apprehend the value of it because we don't really know what he's saying. And so I want to get into that. I hope to bring some clarity to that this morning and give you something to think about going forward. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to the book of Matthew. It's in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in the pew near you. That's our gift to you. We'd be glad to have you take that Bible home with you. Um, But Matthew chapter 5 is in what we call the New Testament. It's in the right two-thirds of your Bible. And uh, it's the first book in the New Testament, which is kind of exciting. And Matthew wrote this book. He was a uh, a former, we believe, tax collector, one who wasn't the most... um, a well-liked individual, but here's Matthew writing in Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to be reading from the New International Version. But in Matthew, we get to the space, and you'll see it in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus had a whole group of people following him, slews of people following him, a slew of people following him, excuse me, and he went up on a mountainside, verse 1, he, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples, meaning not just the 12 disciples, but the followers, all those, we're probably talking hundreds if not thousands of people on the mountainside here, and he began to teach them, saying, and here's what he said from verses 3 to 10. He taught more, but we're just looking at verses 3 to 10. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy, and blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if you were with us last week, you saw there in verses 3 and 10, 
that both of those verses end with, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That the kingdom of heaven is the issue that Jesus is talking about. He opens with it and he closes with it. Everything in between has to do with the kingdom. These are values or characteristics of people who want to be kingdom people. Right? And this is just the way that that works. And so each of these teachings, we've taken one by one, and we are now on to the third teaching here, and that begins in verse 5. This is what we're looking at this week. In verse 5 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And what a strange word and idea that is. When is the last time you have ever had someone tell you, man, that was a real meek decision you made in that meeting? Right? I mean, it doesn't even happen. Can you imagine the guys getting together and being like, hey, how did the meekness thing go this week? It just doesn't happen because we don't even know what that means. In fact, if you were to tell me or if I were to tell you, and particularly if the guys are hanging out, like, there's no, no way. I mean, it would be offensive. You said, man, you, you acted pretty meek. In fact, it would, it would, it would be a, a cousin to you were, you were weak and passive. You're like the wet noodle in the corner. Like, that's what we think meek means. But, but Jesus actually raises this word up, and he says, blessed are you who are, who are meek. And we talked at the beginning about blessed, meaning satisfied, full, complete. This is a good space to be in if you are. And he says, meek. Just, it's just weird. Like, we don't have a category for this. Here's the thing. Jesus actually describes himself as meek in a couple different places in the New Testament. He uses a different word for that. Sometimes it's translated gentle, okay? But it's this idea of meekness. Now, before we get too soft and squishy on this and think that we're really talking about like Hallmark movies and, you know, tissues and whatever, marshmallows and rainbows and unicorns and get real like soft and wussy on this thing. Whenever Jesus describes himself as something, we have to take into totality, into picture the totality of Jesus. And someone like Jesus who would willingly walk into a city where he knew that he was going to be tortured and his body ripped apart in death, and willingly walks in there and defines love that way and says, I'm meek, <laughs> that redefines my understanding of meek. It doesn't make it weak and wussy and a wet noodle thing in the corner. It means like, man, I don't understand what meek means. Because this man of character, a strong man of character, incredible leader, he calls himself that. I need to understand that. And so this is where I come on this idea of meek. We're probably, by the end of this, not still going to use the word meek. I'm cool with that. But I want to at least understand what it means so that I can begin to process, is this a part of my life or not? Is it a part of your life or not? Is it a part of the business that you run or not? Is it part of the way your family operates, the way you raise your kids or not? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So my best understanding... My best understanding of this word for meek is really this. I'm going to get right to the definition. My description of it probably is better. Here, here we go. The meek are those who exercise their influence without throwing their weight around. That is the simplest way for me to understand what Jesus is saying when he says, blessed are the meek. The meek are those who exercise influence without throwing their weight around to make it happen. They are the ones who are not arrogant, they're not oppressive, they will lead by inviting rather than demanding. They know in a meeting that their words carry more weight than someone else's and they're aware of that and they're sensitive to that piece, but they exercise influence without having to throw their weight around. They are people who are quick to reconcile because they understand the importance of reconciliation. They're people who are quick to forgive because they understand that dynamic is significant for the, the work of someone who is meek, who seeks to exercise influence. The meek are those, I believe, the best way to understand it, those who exercise influence. In other words, they don't just sit around in the corner. 
They don't just sit around the corner. But they exercise influence intentionally. But they do it without having to throw their weight around and make it work for them. And you know people like this, and you know people who aren't like this. And don't poke or look around at people and be like, hey, you know, you know mother-in-law, father-in-law, you know, dad, you know, mom, whatever. Like, don't do that. And I don't mean that mother-in-law, father-in-law, where you are in here, okay? My in-laws go to church here. That wasn't, that wasn't like a Freudian slip or something like that. I'm, I'm serious. Um, so uh, th- there's a deal. The meek. Now, now, every beatitude has a corollary statement with it. Like, blessed are the meek, for they what? Like, why would it be valuable? Here's the issue. Why would it be valuable to be someone who pursues this, to be a mom who pursues this, who doesn't throw your weight around as, as you parent, to be a dad who doesn't throw your weight around as you parent, to be a, a boss or leader who doesn't throw your weight around as you boss and lead? Like, what is the reason? Why would you be blessed if you do this? And really, the second part of the beatitude is honestly equally as confusing as the first. Because Jesus says, well, they're going to inherit the earth. Well, that's great. I have no idea what that means, but I guess if Jesus said it, it must be important. I mean, what does that mean? I mean, is it going to be like at some point in the future, who knows when, there's going to be like a meek portion of the earth? Like all those who did something meek in their lifetime, that's going to be, that's going to be their corner. That's the meek neighborhood. Everyone else wasn't quite in the meek. I mean, what does that mean? You're going to inherit the earth. What in the world is that about? In the New Testament, interestingly enough, the New Testament takes what are Old Testament commands and Old Testament ideas, particularly related to land promises, and, and changes their scope. Okay? In the Old Testament, the way that people related to God primarily was through covenants. There was an Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant, etc. In the Abrahamic covenant in the book of Genesis, as Abraham is relating to God, God promises Abraham three things in that covenant. A land promise, seed promise, and and blessing. That he will have a place, a land to be, and that he will have many offspring, and that he will be blessed among all people on the earth. There's a land, seed, and blessing. In the New Testament, the land promises of Abraham's covenant that carry throughout the Old Testament, this is why the nation of Israel took on the promised land, etc. In the New Testament, those land promises are kind of translated or turned, instead of being physical land promises, are turned almost all the time to ethical or moral understanding of the character or the quality of the kingdom of God rather than a physical land space. But I believe what Jesus is doing is speaking to people who would have understood the history of the Abrahamic covenant and the land promise and say, listen, the people who inherit the land, the people who relate to God in the Abrahamic covenant, the people who will be blessed are the people who will, are, are meek and they will inherit the earth. So what does it mean to inherit the earth? Here's my best understanding of, of inherit the earth. I'll try to explain it. That I think what Jesus is saying is this, that excuse me, to inherit the earth is actually to win the day in the long run. Let me explain that. To to win the day in the long run, meaning that the people who are meek, these are the people whose voices carry in the long run. They're the ones whose stories you tell later. When you were riding your bike through Marietta and you run into people you haven't seen for a long time, then you remember why you ran into them, because they were meek in their leadership and they leave an impression on you and they've won the day and they have changed your heart and they have changed you. You don't necessarily remember the, the junior high leader who was you know, maybe charismatic and fun-loving but didn't actually care about you and lead in the meek kind of way, but you do remember, you do remember the people who have been meek and have changed your life this way. They've exercised influence without throwing the weight around. You don't remember who was driving the bus, for example, in Montgomery, Alabama, when the bus driver asked Rosa Parks to move her seat. I don't remember his name. You remember his name? But I do remember this lady named Rosa Parks. 
She exercised her influence without throwing a weight around. I don't remember who was in power in South Africa when they decided to imprison Nelson Mandela, who was trying to fight apartheid in South Africa. I don't remember who was in charge and who the white leaders were there who put Nelson Mandela in prison. But I remember Nelson Mandela. I remember the meek leadership, someone who exercised influence in a nonviolent way. Listen, I don't remember, we, we may not remember who exactly was the Caesar during the time when Jesus walked the earth, but I do remember that Jesus walked the earth. Like the meek are remembered, their voice carries. Even on the playground, the people who are meek have influence and they win the day in the long run. This is what I think Jesus is saying. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, you inherit the earth, if you will, by being meek. That these characteristics are the ones that populate the kingdom. These are the people. These are the people who win the day, those who are meek. Now, now here's the thing about this. If this is true, that there's a future orientation, that like you will, this characteristic wins the day in the long run. It is always a gift to us. It is always a gift to us to stop and think about what our future is and how our present lines up with that future, right? It, you probably saw the news this week, Southwest flight, ooh, I don't know, was it 1380 maybe? It took off from New York trying to get to Dallas. Remember the news of that? And all of a sudden, about 20 minutes in and 32,000 feet up, pop aisle 14's window blows out because a fan blade from the motor comes flying into that and hits that, and the lady is sucked halfway out and dies, we believe, upon impact, being sucked out on that. It's brought back in all kinds of news of heroism in the airplane itself. There's pictures of what's going on. There's a firefighter who comes back to help save her and all that. I mean, again, which is another... um, kind of normal when we say that, and we just want to acknowledge those even here who are first responders and the just natural courage and strength we have and, and recognition and honor we have people like that who just go into places others don't. So this guy comes back and helps. And then we also hear, we hear stories of, of like this one guy who, as the plane is descending rapidly, and people are screaming, and the, the oxygen masks drop down, and people really, I mean, this is, this is it. Like, they don't know the end of the story yet. So one guy opens up his laptop, begins writing. What else is he going to do? I don't know. He begins writing. What's he writing? He's writing to his loved ones. Now, I wasn't there, and I don't know what he wrote. But what do you think he wrote? Hey, honey, I just want you to remember how many meetings I attended this week and how amazing our accomplishments were in business this year. I hope that you and the kids will be able to replicate that coming forward. Hey, I just got a new iPhone 10 before this plane goes down. I want you to know the specs on that thing and how awesome it is and how quick the processor is relative to the old phone that I had. Love you much, Dad. Hey, one more picture quick on Instagram. Hope the filter is right before I go down. Make sure that it is just... I mean, seriously, we know what the guy wrote. We don't have to be there to know that. He's telling the people he loves how much he loves them. It's just as simple as that. This is what people do when they realize the end is upon them and they have time. Not a lot of time, just enough. They're going to communicate how much they love the people that they are going to miss, how much they want them to love one another well. And if it's true that in the end, the meek inherit the earth and that character trait wins the day, I believe Jesus is telling us very clearly another nuance of how is it that you love the people around you well, leaders, influencers, students, young adults, middle-aged, older adults. 
Come on, how is it that you love people? Because at the end of the day, the end of the day, this is what matters. And it is a gift to stop and remember this. And Jesus says it very clearly. Blessed are the meek, and so I need to understand that. Now, with all that being said, let me, let me add this. All right? Let me add this. The question I have as I thought about this piece is this. Um, what do I do with this idea? What do I do with the idea that the, the meek will inherit the earth? And I, I feel like, particularly today, it's a good day to talk about two things. One is how the church should react to it, and secondly is how I should react to it. I think there's a corporate church weight that the church has. And that, that has been used and abused over the past several years and over the past decade or whatever, that the church itself has influence. The church has influence in the town square. The, the church needs to figure out, what does the church do? How does the church love well in this space? And one of the struggles that I think we all have in the church is that we all live in a space and time history. Like, I was born in a particular year, 1999 is when I was born. And, uh, 89, anyway, okay. And I've lived only a certain number of years. It's a very limited number of years, very, very small number of years that I've lived. But here's the deal. My experience with the church is generally limited to those years. I mean, I can read about it if I want to outside of that. And with my training, I happen to have done that. But if, if I didn't have that training, I don't think I would have done it to the degree that I have. And so for all of us who have, who have lived in a certain period of time in history, we generally view the church through the lens of what we are used to and what's been passed on to us in our current iteration of the church. Does that make sense? Like, we see the church this way. And this is why when, when there's a transition in leadership, for example, when one pastor leaves, another one comes on, or one leadership shift happens, another one, that, that those of us who are used to things a certain way are like, wait, hold on, let me raise my hand here. I don't think this is what I'm used to. There's a change that has not been happening in my lifetime before. But rare is it to hear, you know what, I have a question, because historically, this isn't how the church has functioned. <laughs> because we, we, it is the rare person who thinks beyond our current version of the church. And here's what I want you to know, if you don't know this already. I'm going to be really kind of brief, as brief as I can. I, it, it's a gift to us to go outside of our current historical iteration of the church. If we go back just in time for a minute with me, if we go back to the 1800s um, in England... In England in the 1800s, England was growing to become a superpower in the mid-1800s. And the evangelical community, evangelical church, was the power player in society. The arts that were created were drawn, created by evangelical leaders. The political world was impacted deeply by evangelical leaders. People like William Wilberforce, who fought hard for abolition, for slavery to be abolished, fought for that for years and years, evangelical Christian. People involved significantly in the social service movement, even preachers, like the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was involved in dozens of social service organizations. The church in the 1800s, mid-1800s and beyond in England itself, was, was the social shaper of the world at the time. Absolutely was. And it's during this period that the church actually created something called Sunday School. And we know that Sunday school, actually, the history in that is because the church looked at kids in poverty in the community and realized they're working six days a week. They're working six days a week. And if we don't educate these kids and teach them how to read, poverty will continue to cycle through. The church needs on Sunday, their holy day, the church needs to educate kids 
ended up using the Bibles in our curriculum over time. But the church needs to do on Sunday a school for kids. We need to be involved in the social help in our community. It was at the same time the church also looked around and saw kids being involved as chimney sweeps around England and saw, you know what, they're getting burned and they're dying and no one cares. People like Spurgeon, again, created safe spaces for both orphanages and hospitals, et cetera, et cetera, to deal with the social needs that were happening in the day. This was normal. Normal. This is what the church does. The problem is, in the early 1900s, World War I came to our world, and it originated in Europe. It originated in the very place where the church was growing in influence. And the question, the fair question came, listen, if this is the best the church can do, lead us into war like this, what is the use of being involved and engaged in the church at all. Meanwhile, across the pond here in North America in the 1900s, the same time, early 1900s, there was a group of people who felt that pushback to the church and felt like, ooh, we just were in World War I, this is a big pushback. And a group of people met around um, Niagara Falls, New York, and created what was called the Fundamentalist Movement. The fundamentals of the faith were created in the early 1900s, and the point of that was to, to preserve the church from people who were attacking it. Because it was just a few years after that, in the 1920s and on, the Scopes trial in Tennessee, which put evolution and creation on trial. And later on, then World War II and the Great Depression came into play. But the the church, the conservative, evangelical, fundamentalist church, had in North America in the early 1900s cocooned itself from society, was not engaged in the arts, was not engaged in the social world, was not engaged in any of that, because they were being attacked by people like groups like the ACLU, etc., etc., and the church cocooned itself and came back into the space and just said, we want to protect our theology, our doctrine, and get it right. Get it right. This is the way the church developed. In the 60s, 70s, 80s, the social justice movement began in the church, and left-leaning churches, more liberal churches, were like, listen, we need to help people. We need to help people like people in England help people. We need to help people like people in the New Testament help people. Like We need to help people. And so the social justice movement, social gospel, began moving, but almost always on the left-leaning side. So conservative Christians, even good, in fact, I would say great leaders, people who have influenced me deeply, were very critical of that movement. People like D.L. Moody said things like, don't polish the brass on a sinking ship. (laughs) Listen, if our culture is going to hell, what's the point of polishing that brass? Come on, save people, teach them about Jesus, bring them that truth. That's what they need. That's what D.L. Moody would say. Even people like Billy Graham or people like Josh McDowell, groups like um, Young Life or Campus Crusade, listen to me, great groups impacted me deeply. I'm not critical of them. Listen to me, I'll say that again if I need to. Not critical, but we need to understand what they did. In that moment, in that space, in the 70s, 80s, 90s in North America, created a space where the church is really a propositional gospel. Like, all that we need to do is save people. Why would you waste your time building relationships when you can just have a rally and teach people about Jesus? Why would you waste your time building relationships? And that was exactly what was happening. In the 90s and later, People like Leslie Newbegin, John Stott, and all that began to rethink the question, rethink what is church and how should the church influence society? Began to ask, come on, can't there be a way, can't there be a way that the church can be both involved in the social and cultural good while still being involved in the spiritual good for all people? Isn't there a way to figure this out? And this is where I think we find ourselves as a church here and in our community right here. We talk about it, Grace Point Church. Wanting to be involved in the social, spiritual, and cultural good. Taking a historic look at the church and the movement of it throughout history. Realizing that the iterations of the church change over time. But how is it, how is it, if the meek will inherit the earth, if the meek will inherit the earth, if you want to use your influence as a church 
to influence the people around you without throwing your weight around. A church throws its weight around when it feels like it doesn't care about the needs of people and just cares about their agenda. And this is what I've been so impressed with Grace Point Church about. So encouraged by what you are willing to do. And I mean that. Because your story is profound. The story of Grace Point Church is profound in this way. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who say, I want to love these people in our community. I want to love without just chucking my weight around. Without saying, you need to believe, you need to believe, you need to believe, you need to let's just preach Jesus, just preach Jesus. But can't we do both? Being able to reach in the social, spiritual, and cultural good. I think that this church is saying, yep, there's a way to hold on to Jesus and the hope that we have in the gospel. We believe that unapologetically. Unapologetically. But we also believe in the social and cultural good for people unapologetically too. This is how can the church not throw its weight around in our society? And I'm honored to be a part of a church that's making this space, even though, even though not all the churches in our community are quite in our county are quite tracking with that. That is historically what I see happening. Blessed are the meek, okay? Now, I don't always do a history lesson on Sunday morning, but I hope that was fun for you, at least helpful in some degree. If it wasn't, that's fine. Okay, come back to me for a second, because now I want to talk personally, okay? And then we're going to wrap it up. The question is this. How do I know when I'm throwing my weight around personally? And then I'm going to wrap it up here. But how do I know when I'm throwing my weight around personally? This is a hard question to ask and answer, because this is primarily, um, this is really about pride, and, and I don't see pride quicker in me than you see it. You see it in me quicker than I see it in myself. Does that make sense? Like, you'll see when I'm more um, edgy than I see it. So it's a hard question to ask and answer, but let me just answer it with two questions. Um, the first question I want to ask is this, and that is, do I have, individually, do I have, personally, a healthy feedback loop? At a personal level, as a mom, as a dad, as a student, as a classmate, as a teacher, as a whatever, as a pastor, do I have people, personally and professionally, who can feed back to me where I'm stepping aside from this piece, where I am actually using my weight to influence. Do I have a healthy feedback loop? You take any leader who has fallen morally or fallen any other way, and I guarantee you that there's distance between themselves and the people that they're accountable to. Guarantee it. And that in that space, there's unhealth and corruption, essentially, that happens. Guaranteed. And so this healthy feedback loop is meant to diminish that distance and draw it back. And so I have to ask, and I'd encourage you to ask, frankly, I mean, do I have people who can speak into my life? Do I have a healthy feedback loop? Do the people at my company, do the people that I work for and work with, have I given them permission to feed back into my life how I'm functioning in my work environment? Or do I just assume that I'm doing all right because no one seems to be too angry at me? Do, as, a, as a mom, as a dad, as a husband, as a wife, as a young man, young woman, as an as a older man, older woman, do I have people who are kind of helping me? Am I aging well or am I just getting bitter and angry at the world? Like, or am I young and arrogant or am I like, able to process this stuff in a good way? Like, do I have anybody who can help me see this? Because honestly, I can't see it very well on my own. So that's the first question. Secondly is this. How do I handle things when I'm most stressed? I'd encourage you to consider this issue. And that is when I'm most stressed, when I'm most annoyed, when I have the least resources, do I tend to be like, you know what? Oh, all the people around me don't work as hard as I do. And clearly I'm the hardest working person here. And if only my kids would, if only my spouse would, if only my neighbors would, if only my family would stop and would begin to blame and point and all that. And not that any of you do that, but sometimes that comes into my life. And, and so what do I do? when I'm most stressed. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Not the weak, not the wet noodle in the corner, not the passive. But blessed are the meek who use their influence 
without throwing their weight around for the benefit and service of the community and the world in which they live. And why does it matter? Because if it's true that they're going to inherit the earth, then there will come a time for you and there will come a time for me. And we're going to be the people on the Southwest flight, hopefully figuratively now, not literally. But where we're going to have a space to open up our laptop and write down the most important things that we want our kids to know, the next generation to know, and to communicate our love in that space. And in those moments, when we clear our minds and get down to the most important things, it is going to be, how do I carry out Jesus' command to love my neighbor well? And Jesus says, the meek, they do that. Blessed are the meek, for they're going to win the day in the long run. They're going to exercise influence in the long run without throwing their weight around. Next week, one more teaching of Jesus that reminds us of how we see power in a fresh way. I invite you to come back for that as well. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here in this space, to be in this moment where we capture a teaching that Jesus gives to us about the meek and the inheritance of the earth. and language that's strange and confusing and really something that we are not going to use in that degree. But I pray that we would stop on this issue of weight and power of our words, of our actions, of our behaviors, of the attitudes of our heart. I pray that you would help us to be leaders, people, men and women, moms, dads, uncles, aunts, grandparents, business leaders, school officials, others, students, who with the influence that we have and the space that we have to operate, that we could use our life to love people well, So that one day, when maybe someone is riding their bike around and they see us, they'll remember, yep, they were someone who led selflessly. They were someone who forgave quickly. They were someone who led with courage into space that was hard. Help us to remember how blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Give us courage to do what we know we need to do. We pray this in Jesus' name.